Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Joining me today is a true American hero. Four-star General Wesley Clark spent 34 years in the United States Army. He has seen the best and the worst humanity has to offer. During a patrol in Vietnam, he was shot four times, but he continued commanding his unit until they prevailed against the enemy. For his valor, he was awarded the Bronze and Silver Star. For his injuries, the Purple Heart. General Clark ended his long and distinguished military career as the supreme allied commander of NATO's forces in Europe. But he isn't just a brave warrior and a brilliant strategist. He's also an author, a Rhodes Scholar, graduate of Oxford where he studied philosophy, politics, and economics. And so General Clark is uniquely qualified to help us understand the defining global conflicts of our times. General Clark, welcome to In These Times. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. Pleasure to be here. I've been waiting for a while. It's a treat to be able to speak with you. I, of course, want to talk with you about your view on events, crises around the world. But beforehand, I wonder if you can just give us a bit of your personal background. I understand you grew up in Arkansas and you joined the military, had this spectacular military career. What was it like growing up in Little Rock and what drew you to the military? Well, first of all, I was born in Chicago. My father's family came from Belarus, somewhere between Minsk and Ukraine. My grandfather, Jacob Nemirovsky, somehow made it through Ellis Island with a passport that said Kana. And so we became the Caney family. My grandfather, Jacob, I think was the first to come. He was one of 13 from two different mothers from Meyer Caney, my great-grandfather. And by 1910, there were like 100 Caneys in Chicago. And so my father went to um, Kent College School of Law. Everybody was very proud of him. He became an ensign in the Navy in World War I. But he came back to Chicago and went into city politics. And he was um, deputy corporate counsel in Chicago for years. He married my mother, who was a divorcee Protestant from Arkansas. It was probably the first mixed marriage in Chicago in that group. It was a big shock to my mother as she related it to me later that, you know, there were places they couldn't go, restaurants they couldn't belong to, vacation, people they couldn't associate with, and et cetera. It was a big shock to her. So I was born in 1944. They'd been married for five or six years. My mother explained it to me. She said, I thought I had a tumor, but it was you. <laughs> Lucky for us, it wasn't a tumor. Well, I was lucky. And I was, um, I loved my father dearly. He was wonderful to me. He bought me a present every Saturday. I rode in his lap and steered the car going through the park. And I remember all these things, but he died. I was not quite four. He didn't leave much. My mother went back to work as a secretary in a bank. She bought a house based on my father's veteran VA loan status down here. My mother lied about her age, got a job as a secretary in a bank. And later she remarried a man named Victor Clark. I didn't know my family's history, really. I would ask about it. I did have a picture of my father in a naval uniform, and I just doted on that picture, and I always wanted to, you know, go to Annapolis and read everything about Annapolis, and it was just sort of always there. And my stepfather was an outdoorsman. He taught me hunting and fishing and shooting, and uh, somehow it all came together. And when I was at American Legion Boys State, after my 
junior year in high school and I'd done well. I had scholarships to several universities and a guy from West Point was there, a cadet, and he was wearing glasses and I was wearing glasses at this point. I just started wearing them and I realized I couldn't be an astronaut. They wouldn't let me go to the Naval Academy. West Point was supposed to be the best, like, engineering school next to MIT and the best social studies school next to Harvard. And there was leadership and there was outdoorsmanship. It was an active life. And so I chose it. I didn't find out about my family's, my father's family until I was 23 years old. I was married to a Catholic. I was at Oxford and Israel had just gone through and taken the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And my cousins, several groups of them, made the journey to Israel. My mother wouldn't let them contact me. And they asked her finally for permission. And so I found out I was 23 years old. They told me about my family. I was very proud of them. Your mother made a conscious decision not to reveal the Jewish part of your background. Is that right? That's right. I confronted her afterwards. This is why didn't you ever tell me? And she said, well, you were a little boy. You'd lost your father. You had a speech defect. You had enough going against you when you came to Arkansas. You just didn't need one more thing. And you yourself don't identify as a Jew, but you have a lot of sympathies towards the Jewish people and you know Jewish history, right? Oh, I, well, first of all, I love my Jewish family there. I admire the fact my grandfather got out somehow. I was campaigning for Hillary in Iowa and I ran across the Caney Realty and I found this woman and I said, we must be cousins. I've got, you know, cousins and I met them all over the United States when I ran for office and people would come up to me and show me their grandmother's birth certificate and say, see, uh, you know, we're related. And so I figured this woman, Caney, was related. I said, uh, you're Jewish, right? She said, absolutely not. I said, but all Caneys, I said that I've got relatives everywhere. She said, well, I can tell you there's a village full of Kanas in northern Germany and we're all Lutheran. <laughs> I said, well, how did you get to be in Iowa? She said, well, my father, my, my grandfather was going to come earlier, but he had traveled in southern Germany and somehow he lost his passport and it took a few years to get it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now I called my cousin Harriet, who was the keeper of all the family. Laura said, Harriet, Harriet, I found the story. I found out why we're Caneys and not Nemorowskis. Grandpa Caney either bought a stolen passport <laughs> <laughs> or found a lost passport, or stole a passport. <laughs> I said, whatever happened, I admire him. And my cousin Harry said, oh, I'm sure he didn't do that. <laughs> you had this spectacular career in the military, and of course you became the Supreme NATO commander. You know uh, Europe very well. Tell us, before we go into a little bit about what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, What's at stake in your view for Americans and for the West? What are the ramifications of that in, in daily collective policies? Well, I think you have to step back, Rabbi, and look at it this way. I don't think there's ever been a time in human history when so many people and such a large part of mankind had freedom of conscience. There's never been a society that had the kind of freedom of expression, freedom of exploration for so many at so many different levels. That's what's at stake for mankind where we are right now. This is a struggle. President Biden, I think, said it very well. 
It's a struggle between autocracy and democracy. And, you know, this might not be an easy system of government, but it's a self-correcting system if we follow the rule of law in it. And eventually, maybe we'll do the right thing. And so far, it's worked better than an autocracy. President Xi Jinping's Communist Party said that the greatest threat to China is Western democratic values. And the real threat that Putin faces in Ukraine is not NATO. It's the threat of a democratic Ukraine that could communicate to people in Russia and say there's a different way to live. You know, Russia has always been a statist economy. I mean, from the time that the Ivan the Terrible threw off the yoke of the Mongol horde and paid tribute to them, everything was about the state. The state owned all the land, the state owned all the people, and if you were a hero and expanded the state, the state gave you serfs and, a, and territory and a medal. And that's the way it worked. And that's what Russia still is. It's still, is, and despite the communist revolution, Lenin and Stalin stepped right into it and continued the imperialistic policies. And so nothing really has changed. We're recording this right at the beginning of the long talked about Ukrainian counteroffensive. Do you have confidence in the Ukrainian military, assuming that the West continues to arm it, if not fully, then at least adequately? And is this a very long-term issue, or is can we expect some kind of, if not resolution, at least improvement on the Ukrainian position over the next year or so? I think we can expect some improvement, but Rabbi Hirsch, this is too early. It's too early to make that call on how this is going. This is an entirely different matter than looking at the Ukraine defense. In mobile warfare like this, you have to bring a overwhelming preponderance of power to bear at a focal point on the battlefield. And to be honest with you, despite the assistance we've given to Ukraine, and they couldn't have survived without our assistance, and the administration's been very generous, it hasn't given them, in my view, sufficient combat power to assure that we can eject Russia from the Ukrainian territories they occupy. I think the administration had a very sensible policy. It said, look, we don't want Ukraine to lose, but we don't want nuclear war, and Putin has nuclear weapons, and so we have to be careful. He, he might be, uh, you know, backed into a corner and lash out with nuclear weapons. And so this balance between how much you can put in and help the Ukrainians versus how much they need has been the great challenge for the administration. Some of the administration have said, well, it's like cooking the frog in the pot. You know, you put him in the pot, he doesn't know it, you turn up the heat. So Putin's getting slowly cooked, but he's getting slowly cooked at the cost of tens of thousands of Ukrainian casualties. And Russia has the pre predominance of manpower, and it's very competitive. I mean, Russia has been very active diplomatically. They've cut off sources of weapons support and ammunition support to Ukraine. They've wooed Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. They pushed a lot of oil to India and to the Emirates, where it's being rebranded in violation of the sanctions. They're working with Iran to get technology in, as well as weapons, and with China and North Korea, probably, and some things we can't see, but we have to assume those efforts are underway. So it's not clear that the long term is in our favor. This is a very dynamic situation. Are you confident that the Ukrainians can 
win, at least if you define winning, reacquiring the territories that they lost since the Russians invaded last year as opposed to Crimea? Well, sure, if we give them, continue to give them the equipment they need. But when you are on defense, it's one thing. When you're on the attack, it's something else. You know, this is a very complicated battlefield. You have to have electronic warfare. You have to be able to locate the enemy's transmitters, take them out. You have to knock out his communications. You have to identify the locations of his minefields and his positions if you're going to attack. When you're on defense, you don't have to do all that. When you're on offense, it requires a different suite of capabilities. It's not clear that they have that full suite of capabilities or insufficient numbers. Look, when I was commander of the 1st Cavalry Division in 1992-94 at Fort Hood, Texas, we had three brigades. And in those brigades, we had a total of um, about 300 tanks and about 300 Bradley fighting vehicles. That's about what we've given the Ukrainians, counting everything. We've given them 81 Bradley fighting vehicles. And I understand we're shipping 10 more over to replace their losses. That's a very minimal force. We had thousands of tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles and their equivalent in the Cold War facing on a 400-mile front facing the Soviet armies in East Germany. This is a 600-mile front. So by our understanding of it, they're very under-equipped. The reason that we have under-equipped them, in your view, is because we don't want to push the Russians to such a degree that they might, in fact, use tactical nuclear weapons? Is that the reason we're not equipping them to win back all of the territories they lost? Well, that seems to be a concern, yeah. Whether that's the overriding reason or not, I don't know. Some of it is that we don't have the equipment. We don't have that many Patriot batteries to give them Patriot batteries. So they don't really have the combined arms capacity that we would have had we been in that position launching an offensive. You know, this is a real challenge to the courage and skill determination of Ukraine. Is it fair to conclude from what you're saying that from your perspective, either way, we're in it for the long haul. This is not going to end anytime soon. And we're looking at a factor of years rather than weeks or months. I think that's true, Rabbi, because were we to simply say, okay, cease fire in place, enough of this killing, it's over. Russia will rebuild its forces. Putin hasn't changed his aims. And so a year from now, two years, four years from now, we'll be back at it again. And that's why the uh, people talk about security guarantees. Really, the only security guarantee that's going to mean anything for Ukraine, I think, is the positioning of U.S. forces in Ukraine or NATO membership. Do you think the West has the staying power to continue to support Ukraine over the many years that are look likely on the horizon here? With American leadership, absolutely. The way that NATO has always worked is with strong American leadership. America says, you need to do this. And there's a debate, and countries hem and haw around, and ultimately it comes down to some private means that look, I would never have done this as chancellor, but the Americans, those nasty Americans, they're demanding it. And if I, you know, and we have to do this. And so they use the American leadership as an explanation, as a crutch to get through their domestic politics. And that's what's made NATO work. When I was NATO commander and we were striking the Serbs, we began to bomb the Serb military factories. The Greek ambassador came to me and said, General, 
You know, these factories you're bombing, they're owned by Greeks. I said, I know, but they're producing trucks for Serbs. He said, I know, I'll tell Athens. You know, I mean, it's just the way that it works in NATO. And so you have to have an American leadership that's strong enough and determined enough to insist. And then behind the scenes, pull the right levers and put the right things in place. Look, one of the things we need to do, Rabbi, is we need to strengthen the economic cooperation between the United States and Europe. Going back to uh, China, and you laid out the geopolitical stakes there as well. First of all, it seems to me from what you're saying, we're looking at long period of time of diplomatic and political and economic confrontation between the East and the West. Are you worried about China invading Taiwan? Yes, and, and I'm worried about the confrontation because it's not, it's not totally confrontational. You know, we're still using China to supply a lot of things in the United States, like 90% of our active ingredients in our pharmaceuticals, they come from China. We don't have a replacement for that. We send our rare earth clays to China to be processed into rare earths that are needed for electric vehicles and super magnets and things. We're not going to be able to divorce ourselves from China. The way you have to handle China is to understand when China lost respect for the United States, it was the recovery from 2008. We had a weak recovery. China had a strong recovery. At that point, China said, you know what? This is our moment in the sun. The American political system, it's not working that well. And they misunderstood democracy. But I think, you know, the way you handle China is the way that President Biden has laid out <clears throat> with the investment programs. Because if you build up the American economy, if you take your critical industries like your chips, your medical, your space, your military technologies, if those are American and we're putting our full effort behind it, China can't compete with that. They won't beat us in quantum computing and AI. We'll dominate that. They won't beat us in biotechnical. We'll dominate that. They won't outperform us and they will respect us. The way you compete with China is to compete with them economically in jobs and system and creation of <clears throat> new technologies and wealth in the United States and with our allies. That's what they respect. Do you think they fear, if they invade Taiwan, American direct intervention? Well, I don't think Xi Jinping wants to take that risk right now. His rule is maintained based on the fact that he can make people wealthy or prosperous, or at least survive better than they did before, and they will give him their political loyalty. Well, if he loses the economy, that Chinese Communist Party's going to be thrown into disarray. So going after Taiwan, wrecking the economy, that's going to be tough. He doesn't want that. But for the United States, we have to move past the age of Reagan. You know, the idea that everything's up to the private sector, it isn't. You need government leadership. We've always had it in the health. We've always had it in defense. But now we need it in things like energy and high-tech manufacturing and research and development. We've got to also look at our school system. You know, the majority of the advanced students are not Americans in American universities. 
we like sex, drugs, rock and roll. They want to do real things. And they come to study in our universities. Our kids like music. I mean, nothing against music, but, you know, we can do better than that. We're going to have to. Back in the 1950s, when we realized the challenge of Sputnik, the U.S. government got very serious about strengthening science and engineering education. And we need to do that again in this country. You've been to Israel. Many times. Tell us on a personal level, and you told us a little bit about your background, your Jewish background and your family. What, do you, what were your impressions of Israel? First time I went to Israel, I told people about my background. They said, well, you look like a rabbi. Okay, fine. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a place where I always feel comfortable. I know a lot of people on both sides, all sides of the political spectrum. But I am concerned because actually it was an American mistake to let Putin come in to Syria. That was under the Obama years. Yep, yep. Every American president's trying to keep Russia out of the Middle East. Well, now they're there. And as my Israeli friends tell me, Russia is our northern neighbor. Okay, I understand that. Bibi's been summoned to see Putin a couple of times. It's like, hey, we can't keep the Iranians away without Russian help. Okay, but Russia has an arrangement with the Iranians. And so Israel is being torn in different directions. There's a problem coming with Iran. There's no doubt about it. But that's what I was going to ask you. Do you have thoughts about, there's some talk now that the Americans are uh, opening up the negotiations again with the Iranians and that there are pretty good prospects that they'll reach some kind of mini deal. What do you think about the Iran deal and the nuclear threat of Iran? I think they're very close to having a nuclear weapon. I think when they do that, it changes the way Israel can defend itself in a difficult neighborhood. And it changes the calculus for deterrence. So it's very important that we not allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon. That's what everybody has said. I think it was a mistake to kill the agreement. I also thought we didn't get everything we should have in that agreement. And in particular, the, we needed a restraint on Iranian hegemonic activities. We haven't gotten that restraint. So I think we're on a perilous path that is likely to lead to renewed conflict in the region. Do you think Israeli threats to prevent Iran, even militarily, from acquiring a nuclear weapon are real and they can be manifested, or is it mostly threats and words? Well, we've looked at this before. In 2006, there was an effort to look at whether we should strike Iran and a lot of countries in the region said no. And so nothing was done. And there was, a, I think, a fake Iranian effort to show that they weren't working for nuclear weapons that we bought and said in 2007, well, they seem to not have a nuclear program. But I think it's just going to be one of those continuing knife-edge diplomatic issues that will be worked. Can Russia do anything to help? Or is Russia going to be an enemy? So right now, the world hasn't totally congealed into Cold War-like blocks of enemies. Iran still is doing trade, still trying to work its way into the world. Russia still getting a lot of consumer goods and other technologies from the West. China still economically engaged. So it's a very complex international environment. 
somehow we have to strengthen security in the region, prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, and at the same time, invite the Russians to leave. Is it conceivable to you that Israel would act alone against Iran? And would they even be able to do so without the support of the United States? You know, it's possible, but only if there were a specific Casas belief. Well, the Israelis would claim their Iranians are on the cusp of building a nuclear weapon. Would that be sufficient causes belly? I doubt it. I doubt it. They're on the cusp of building a nuclear weapon right now. <laughs> They're within a month of it. But I think some major move by Hezbollah, <clears throat> some major set of strikes backed by an Iranian threat, that would be a causes belly. And then the Americans would rally behind Israel. Absolutely. No question about it. Let me ask you, uh, have you followed the judicial reform debate in Israel? And do you have views on that? This is part of a effort on in many different countries to undercut the rule of law and make it more subject to the politics of the moment, let's say. And what has preserve democracy is the ability to navigate over the bumps and potholes of the moment politically by falling back on the rule of law by precedent. And it, it's under challenge everywhere, including in the United States, in Poland, in Hungary, clearly, but in other countries as well. Israel's one of many that's got to resolve this. And uh, it's a question of whether you believe that there's some overriding issue politically that's so imperative that the system itself is not going to respond to that you have to throw out the system or drastically modify it. I don't think there's that issue in Israel, but maybe some do. I don't think that issue exists in the United States, but some people do. I love that response. One final question apropos of the United States. So we're entering into a what looks like a pretty intense electoral process here in election season. You optimistic about the future of our country and its political leadership? Uh, yes, I am, because what I see is that we've been through three major political cycles since the American Civil War, the Gilded Age, the Progressive Era, and now the Age of Reagan. And you can see that the age of Reagan is faltering, the energy is rising, and we're going to go into a fourth era. You know, it's like we used to say in the Army, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. Well, I mean, we traditionally overdo everything in America. We overdid the free market in the Gilded Age, and the reaction was a progressive era. Well, we kind of overdid that, too, and the reaction was to scale back government. That's the age of Reagan. And now it looks like, hey, uh, the private sector can't do everything. So now we need a, the pendulum's going to swing back. That's the beauty of democracy. That's what gives us a future. It's not about a charismatic leader. It's not about a single wise statesman. There will always be ambitious, talented people that want the power, the glory, the money, whatever it is that draws people into politics. And that's true in every society. The real issue is the culture and the structure of the culture. The structure has been pretty good for the United States. The question is, can we preserve the culture of not making politics a sport? 
the culture of recognizing that every American can't be an expert on every issue, the culture that we have to respect other people's different opinions, that we're all in this together, that there's something called the common good that is more important than the private good. But, you know, here's the thing, Rabbi, the American electorate changes 4% every four years. So the people who can't let go of the 1950s, they're fading. People that are coming in are more tolerant, more understanding, less prejudiced. And as long as we can maintain a balance in society and look for the common good, balance between what we need at home, recognizing we need friends and allies abroad, we can't survive as isolated democracy in a world of dictators. As long as we keep that in balance, we'll find lots of good men and women who want to serve in government. So I'm optimistic. On that note, General Clark, thank you for spending this time with us. It's been fascinating. And on behalf of all Americans, thank you for your decades of contributions to American life. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you, Rabbi Irish. Thank you. Wesley Clark is an American hero. We rarely meet people like him, a four-star general, a Rhodes Scholar who earned a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University in England, and an author. General Clark is both a warrior and a scholar, the best of combinations. I spend a lot of time with military officers, and I am constantly amazed that it is the most senior, the most battle-hardened military personnel, the warriors who have performed supreme acts of heroism on the battlefield, who are often the most infused with democratic and humanitarian values. It's an astonishing and uplifting thing to behold. Those most trained for war are often those who most caution about the limits of force. They emphasize democracy, respect for human rights, human dignity and tolerance, the spirit of patriotism, self-sacrifice, and courage surge through them. Spending this time with General Clark is a good opportunity to reflect on war and peace, tyranny and freedom, and the role of military power in ensuring and protecting human liberty and well-being. Judaism despises war. We have always maintained that there will come a day of peace, when nations will know war no more, when the lion shall lie down with the lamb, and all will be tranquil. Overwhelmingly in Judaism, our heroes were scholars, teachers, philosophers, poets, not military figures. Who is a hero, asked Jewish sages, one who turns an enemy into a friend. But we are not pacifists. There are occasions, and Judaism discusses these at great lengths, when the refusal to use force is not only unwise, but immoral. If a neighbor arises to kill you, you must arise earlier to thwart him. For as we are taught, while each life is precious in the sight of God, my life is no less valuable than the one who seeks to destroy me. Turning the other cheek might sound good if it's someone else's cheek, but Judaism never embraced that philosophy. One of the central lessons of Jewish existence is that powerlessness leads to catastrophe. Powerlessness leads to more abuse, not less. It leads the strong to savage the weak, 
This was Putin's assumption when he invaded Ukraine. He thought it would all be over quickly. He invaded Ukraine because he thought he could do so easily. The savagery, the war crimes, the depravity and inhumanity that this arrogance unleashed is devastating. The sad reality of the human condition, and such as our world is now, is that a warlord like Putin must be countered with force. For Israelis, the only way to stay alive in the Middle East is to be stronger than those seeking to destroy Israel. But wielding power is fraught with the potential for abuse, immorality, and cruelty. And thus, the use of force must be grounded in the highest of humanitarian values. It's why the best military leaders are also steeped in knowledge of and sensitivity to the better angels of human nature. It's why they study philosophy. History is replete with courageous warriors who inspired legions of followers to commit horrendous atrocities. Military courage is a remarkable thing to behold because most human beings are cowards. Fear paralyzes and incapacitates us. In make or break moments, the brave soldier is the most critical and rare person on the field. It's not that they are unafraid, but somehow they manage to overcome their fears while most cannot. They remain calm when everyone else loses their minds. Courage is as contagious as fear. One act can rally the troops and save the day. I have met these types of people personally. They are a wonder. Screw your courage to the sticking place, Lady Macbeth urged her husband. What a wondrous thing, exceptional courage that stands unmoved in the face of death is a remarkable sight to behold. But while Judaism always valued courage on the battlefield, it was never enough. Macbeth's courage was employed in the service of murder to kill the king. Physical courage is morally neutral. The sad truth, if we brush away all the political rhetoric, is that terrorists can be courageous too. They are often willing to lay down their lives in service to an idea. If only they were not courageous, it would be easier to deal with them. Many of history's villains were courageous too, but they were courageous for the wrong things. And hence, Judaism always insisted that the use of force be tethered to moral values. The well-worn phrase, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, is at its core a cynical, even nihilistic view of the world. It's simply not true. There is right and wrong, good and evil, life and death, even if locating what is right, good, and life-affirming is often a complicated and uneven process. Therefore, Judaism urged moral courage. Moral courage is the courage that seeks justice. It is the courage to strive towards the light in dark times. It is the selflessness of the self to stand up for what is right, to stand up for the principles you believe in even when you're afraid. Moral courage is the courage to believe in peace and to preach peace when others let slip the dogs of war. Moral courage is the courage of Isaiah. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war no more. Moral courage is the courage of Hosea. I will banish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. Moral courage is the courage to unlock the fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of bondage, to let the oppressed go free, to break off every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, and to take the poor into your home, and to clothe the naked. Moral courage is the courage to speak the truth, 
It is the courage to fight the lonely battle in the name of truth. For all these reasons, we owe a national debt of gratitude to the men and women of the American Armed Forces who are prepared to lay down their lives, if necessary, to defend our people and our ideals. And Wesley Clark was their leader. Until next time, this is In These Times. Thank you.